Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Horror Grips Me, Remembering the Congo. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 22nd, 2013. On March 28, 2013, the famously impartial United Nations did something that it's never done before. The Security Council unanimously approved Resolution 2098 to send what it called an intervention brigade of 3,000 troops to neutralize and disarm M23 rebels in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's the first time that the United Nations will oversee combat troops as opposed to mere peacekeepers. The Intervention Brigade was deployed late this past summer. This month in September, a film called This is Congo by Daniel McCabe is scheduled for release. I urge you to see it. And for details, including the film's website, go to our own Journey with Jesus website. I learned about the film this past July when the New York Times featured it in a five-minute op-doc. That, too, was posted on our website this week. It takes a great leap of moral imagination to comprehend the death and devastation wrought by the protracted wars in the Congo, formerly Zaire. According to a 2008 study by the International Rescue Committee, 5.4 million excess deaths occurred in the Congo from 1998 to 2007. That's a staggering 10% of the population and a death toll seven times greater than the Rwandan genocide. Over half of those deaths occurred since the war ended in July 2003. The overwhelming majority of the victims were civilians. About half of them were children. <clears throat> Millions more Congolese have fled to neighboring countries as both a cause and a consequence of the war. Hundreds of thousands of women have been raped. Peace accords officially ended the war, although continued hostilities along with the social, economic, and political consequences of the war, make for a fragile peace. Resolution 2098, then, is a combination of good news and bad news. On the one hand, help is coming. But on the other, the war is not really over. It's the deadliest conflict in the world since World War II and also the most underreported. The DRC is invisible to most of the world. After all, it's just Africa. It would never occur to the United States to spend a billion dollars a month in the DRC, as it's now considering in Syria. The weeping prophet Jeremiah, in this week's Old Testament reading, 
assumes an eerily modern echo. I've substituted one geographic reference to update his prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 8. <clears throat> oh, my comforter in sorrow, my heart is faint within me. Listen to the cry of my people from a land far away. Is the Lord not in Congo? Is her king no longer there? The harvest is past. The summer has ended, and we are not saved. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn, and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Congo? Is there no physician there? Why, then, is there no healing for the wound of my people? How do you understand a war in a country the size of Western Europe, with 200 ethnic groups, the participation of nine border countries, the interventions of countries like France, Belgium, the United States, Cuba, and China, and 30 rebel militias and proxy armies composed of mercenaries from as far away as Serbia? There's three books, including the one by Gerard Prunier called Africa's World War, Congo, the Rwandan Genocide, and the Making of a Continental Catastrophe. Here at our Journey with Jesus website, I've reviewed two books, Jason Stern's Dancing in the Glory of Monsters and Peter Eichstadt, Consuming the Congo, both of which were published in 2011. <clears throat> the Congo suffered 400 years of political disintegration that began with the European and Arab slave trade of the 16th century and was followed by the wholesale plunder of the region in the 19th century by Belgium's King Leopold. When independence from Belgium came in 1960, the Congolese were hardly ready to rule their vast country. For 32 years, President Joseph Mobutu Sese Seko, who was backed by the United States, epitomized corruption, repression, and incompetence. Laurent Kabila overthrew Mobutu in 1997, was himself assassinated in 2001, and then followed 10 days later by his son Joseph Kabila. Scholars sometimes refer to two wars in Congo. The trigger for the first Congolese war was the 1994 Rwandan genocide, when mainly Hutu people slaughtered 800,000 Tutsis in three months. A million Hutus then fled 200 miles west into eastern Congo, set up a government in exile, and were pursued by the new Tutsi government that sought retaliation. Mobutu supported the Hutus against Rwanda's Tutsi government. About 50,000 refugees perished in the first month from starvation, cholera, thugs, and massacre by the Rwandan government. 
This so-called First Congo War lasted until Kabila overthrew Mobutu in 1997. The Second Congo War pitted Kabila against Uganda and Rwanda in more obvious economic conflicts from 1998 until the peace accords of 2003. But like the layers of an onion, the Congo conflict contained wars within wars that were the product of many causes. Self-defense and retaliation were obvious. Political ideologies played a role. Economic plunder of Congo's vast natural resources threatened about the only way Congo could pay for its war. The regional politics of nine neighboring states exacerbated conflicting interests. It's easy to criticize the deep ethnic hostilities, but as Stearns notes in his book, ethnicity was the last and strongest personal and institutional identity left in the country after the near-complete erosion of the state. He writes, The Congo War had no one cause, no clear conceptual essence that can be easily distilled in a couple of paragraphs. Like an ancient Greek epic, it is a mess of different narrative strands. <clears throat> Eichstatt's book focuses on the Second War, which pitted Kabila's hapless and corrupt government against Uganda, Rwanda, local miners, and numerous militias in the plunder of Congo's vast natural resources of copper, cobalt, coltan, gold, and diamonds. He takes his readers to the sprawling refugee camp in Goma, which was built to accommodate 50,000 people, but is now home to 600,000. He interviews UN experts, gold miners, rape victims, pastors, journalists, village chiefs, and people up and down the supply chain of Congo's conflict minerals. Congo's mineral supplies only a small percentage of those that end up in our electronic gadgets like cell phones, contrary to the inflated figures repeated by advocacy groups. But in a horribly impoverished country, a small percentage of a big number adds up to billions of dollars, almost none of which end up helping ordinary citizens in their communities. While name and shame campaigns might feel good, says Eichstatt, and the rest of the world has an obligation to do its part, only Africans can solve Africa's problems. For their part, Christians can follow Paul's instructions from this week's epistle in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which in light of recent events in the Congo, takes on a new urgency. Paul writes, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. So go see the movie, This is Congo. Maybe host it in your church. Share it with your friends and pray.
For books this week, I review a title called How Will You Measure Your Life? It's written by Clayton Christensen, James Allworth, and Karen Dillon. New York, HarperCollins, 2012, 221 pages. <clears throat> On the last day of class at Harvard Business School, Professor Clay Christensen shares with his students some observations he's made from attending his own Harvard Business School class reunions. At the five-year reunion, all his classmates seemed polished and prosperous. Life was good for an HBS high flyer. The 10-year reunion was different. Some people didn't attend. Some had divorced. Happiness seemed elusive. Then came the reunion at 30 years, when his former classmate Jeffrey Skilling of Enron Infamy was in jail. What had happened? Clearly there was a big disconnect between personal happiness and professional success for these privileged people who enjoyed every advantage. In 2010, Christensen was chosen by his students to address the entire graduating class at Harvard Business School. It was a pivotal moment for him since he had just been diagnosed with a life-threatening cancer that had killed his father. As he had done with his one class, he shared his insights about what exactly constitutes a successful life and how you can achieve that. This book summarizes his insights that have emerged from those class discussions. In particular, he asked three questions. First, how can you choose a career that you'll truly enjoy and not merely endure? Second, how can you attain happiness with your spouse, family, and friends? The third question seems odd, but maybe not since Skilling was his classmate. How can you stay out of jail and live a life of integrity? For all three questions, Christensen expounds theories and practical examples from the business world and transfers them to personal life. For example, don't outsource your kids. Invest for the future. Or again, we hear of corporate culture but he suggests we also have a family culture. There's no magic sauce in this book, just sanctified common sense. But common sense can be uncommon. There's a big difference between being smart and wise, between being professionally successful and personally fulfilled. At the end of the book, Christensen shares how his Mormon faith and family have helped him address these questions. For a similar take on wise advice, see the book that I've reviewed at journeywithjesus.net by the Cornell University gerontologist Carl Pillemer. It's called 30 Lessons for Living, based upon his empirical study of elderly Americans. How Will You Measure Your Life? Clayton Christensen For Movies This Week, I review Fruitvale Station 
2013. Fruitvale Station won several awards at both Sundance and Cannes for its dramatization of the murder of 22-year-old Oscar Grant by BART Police in Oakland on December 31st, 2008. It's the very first film by director Ryan Coogler, who was still a film student at USC when he pitched the idea back in 2011. The movie opens with a real-life cell phone video of the incident, showing the chaos that led to Grant being shot in the back by police while he was lying face down on the pavement. The officer said he mistook his gun for his taser. He was later convicted of involuntary manslaughter and served 11 months in jail. The majority of the film cuts to the last day in Grant's life and his efforts to get his life back on track after having served time in jail. The movie then ends with a fictional version of his murder and, finally, real footage of the protests even four years later about what happened. As fate would have it, Fruitvale Station was released right after George Zimmerman was acquitted of shooting Trayvon Martin. And finally, for poetry and prayers, we continue our series of Celtic poems and prayers, a favorite of mine called The Journey Prayer. God bless to me this day, God bless to me this night. Bless, O oh bless, thou God of grace, each day and hour of my life. Bless, O oh bless, thou God of grace, each day and hour of my life. God bless the pathway on which I go. Bless the earth that's beneath my soul. Bless, O God, and give to me thy love. O God of gods, bless my rest and my repose. Bless, O God, and give to me thy love. And bless, O God of gods, my repose. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 22nd, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.